And turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 today. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 to 13. read the word of God in a few moments, but first let's pray together. Lord, we come to you as the one who invites us to the banquet, the one who has brought us here, your people, and to feast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus, the bread of life, and the food that never perishes through him. We thank you that we can know Jesus through his word, through your word. We pray that as we come to this time, you would feed us spiritually, uh, that we would be filled more and more with Christ. Give us, by the Spirit, spiritual eyes, spiritual wisdom and understanding to have the strength to comprehend the depth and love and height and breadth of your love for us, all that is in Christ Jesus. Help us to know you and understand more of you through this word as it is read, as it is preached. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we read, I want you to imagine yourself in Isaiah's shoes. You're taken into a great temple. You look high above and all you can see is the hem of a robe. You know that sitting on that throne is the great Lord, the one that you know, the one that you love and have served. And that he is now taking you into a vision to reveal himself to you in a way that only a few men have seen, like Moses and Ezekiel and you. And after you see this hem of the robe filling the temple and this God on the throne, and you feel like you're this little uh, bug on the ground in comparison, then your eyes are drawn to light. Above the throne that you see that there is fire and there are angelic creatures who seem to be lit on fire. They have six wings and with two they are covering their faces, not able to see the majesty of the one on the throne. With two they are covering their feet and you see two others of their wings flapping as they go about the business attending to this great king. You look You see fire, you see flapping wings, you wonder if there are thousands and thousands of these flaming angels surrounding the throne. And then you hear their voices. You hear singing. You hear this choir of angels singing the most beautiful song that you have ever heard. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
they sing to one another. And as they sing and as you hear those words, you're reminded of who your God is. God is holy. God in his being and in his essence, he is infinitely holy, perfect and pure in every way. And you're struck by the beauty of God's holiness. You're terrified and yet you're magnetized by the holiness of God. You can't look away from this choir of angels and you wish that you could never-endingly sit there and listen to them sing these words, holy, holy, holy. You think that these angels were created by God. And ever since that they were created by this God, they have never stopped meditating on those words, holy, holy, holy. You wish that you could sit there forever. But your attention then is diverted to an earthquake. Booming voices of this choir shake the doorposts of the temple and you start to become afraid. You're wondering if this earthquake is going to be the death of you, if the the roof is going to fall on you or the ground is going to split open. And as the doorposts are shaking and you're watching the house shake, then you see this burst of smoke. Smoke that fills the air and fills the entire temple and now is blocking your sight of that hem of the robe. And now with this smoke, your eyes are burning. Your nostrils are filled with this smoke. Maybe you are choking up and you're overwhelmed by everything that you have seen and heard and now feel and smell. And so you wonder, is this the moment when you die? How can one see God in this way and live? And so you cry out, ah, woe to me. And you feel like you're being pulled apart, disintegrating into a pile of dust. And so you say, I'm coming undone. I'm coming apart. Because you feel dirty in the presence of this pure God. You say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, as you feel like you are being pulled apart at the seams, things look like now they're about to get even worse. Your eyes then are turned towards one of the burning angels who you watch as he goes to the altar. And on the altar, there is a pile of wood that is perpetually burning and then coals that are red hot. And you see this angel take up with some tongs a red coal. And as you start to wonder, what is he doing? You see him darting towards you, a flaming one, like a rocket who is now headed towards you with this red hot coal in his hands. And so now you think, okay, well now really, I'm really gonna die now. How can an unclean man survive this encounter with this holy God? He is coming to burn me up. And as he flies towards you, he stops right before he gets to you. And gently, he touches your lips with that red coal. 
And when you feel that cold touch your lips, you feel pain burning through your lips and your face going throughout your body, yet instantly at the same time you also feel this mysterious feeling of relief. Like a huge burden has come off of your back. And then the angel explains what's just happened. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And now you understand. The reason you haven't disintegrated in the presence of this holy God is because a sacrifice was made on the altar. And that coal from the altar representing that sacrifice that was made takes away your guilt. That guilt that you have that shows that you deserve to die. But God in his grace has given you salvation and life through this coal that touches your lips. And so tears well up in your eyes as you think about how you've been able to see this holy God and also know his free grace. And then you hear a voice, a new voice, a voice that is coming from the throne. The only voices you've heard so far are a choir singing, holy, holy, holy. But now you hear a different voice. You hear God speaking to you. And the doorposts don't shake when the king speaks. Maybe it's like a, a whisper, the way that Elijah, a prophet before Isaiah, heard a whisper of God speaking to him. You, as Isaiah, you hear this voice very clearly. What does he say? Well, let's read what he says, starting in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So you notice that the first half of the chapter, God does not speak. 
It is Isaiah witnessing what is taking place. Isaiah calls out once. Isaiah hears the angels. But it's Isaiah simply seeing God. He just has this vision and experience of God. But then after that, after his sin is atoned for, Isaiah is ready to hear God speak. Isaiah is ready to go and do whatever it is God commands him to go and do. And so the second half of the chapter, in great contrast to the first half, is entirely speaking. Mostly it's God speaking. Isaiah asks a few questions, but mostly God commands Isaiah. This is what happens when you see God, when you know God, when you know his grace. When you know that your sins are atoned for, you are then ready and eager and willing to go and do whatever God calls you to do. And so as we look at this passage and we see Isaiah's call to be a prophet, we also want to think about ourselves and what God might be calling us to do. God might call people, as we will talk about this morning, he might call you to be a preacher of the gospel. He might call you to go to the nations and preach Christ, whatever he calls you to do. God's people want to offer themselves in service of God. We want to give our lives in serving him because we've known him and the beauty of his holiness and we've known his grace. So let's look at Isaiah's calling. We can call it a glorious calling, a difficult calling, and yet a hopeful calling. So first we see that Isaiah has a glorious calling. Read verse 8 again. God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Now, when God says, who will go for us, you notice the plural there. Uh, Some people will say that he is speaking to the group of angels, the seraphim around him. And if that is the case, then he, it's not as if he's asking for their counsel or asking for their advice. Hey, who do you guys think should go for us? Uh, No, God, God does not receive any counsel. Or it could be that there's a hint of the Trinitarian nature of God, three in one, three persons. And that's why he speaks in the plural here as us. It is interesting that in the New Testament, when John quotes these verses, John says that Isaiah saw and heard the Son of God. And so Isaiah is speaking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then when The Apostle Paul quotes these verses in Acts chapter 28. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said this. In quotes verses 9 and 10. And so in in the New Testament, we have these words that are attributed to Jesus speaking these things. And also the Holy Spirit speaking these things. And so it does make sense here to see a hint of how we have the triune God before the throne, on the throne, saying, who will go for 
us. When God says these words and he's asking as a question, it's not because God doesn't know everything. He doesn't know who's going to go. It's not because God is powerless and, and he really just wishes that somebody would go. And so it, it's not like God is asking the HR department, hey, did you post any resumes on Indeed.com? How come I haven't seen anything on my desk? Who's going? Who's going who's gonna to do this job? Now, God's not sitting there frustrated like he can't find anybody. When he asks the, the question, what, he, what he's trying to tell us, remember God is condescending to us uh, in the way that he presents himself. He's trying to tell us that he is deliberate about who he calls. God doesn't just call anybody and everybody for a mission like this. God is looking for a special kind of man, we might say. God doesn't deliberate literally, like God's not sitting around thinking, who will go for us? But in human words, we can say God is deliberate about those that he calls. Even if you just think about things like the qualifications in the New Testament about who should be a pastor or a deacon in in the church, it's not just anybody that can do that, but God is deliberate. He, He really cares about who is going to lead the church. So when he says, who will go for us? The point he's trying to get across is that he's looking for a certain kind of man. Similar to what God says in Ezekiel 22, verse 30. He says, I looked for a man who would stand in the breach, who would stand between in the wall and, and build up the wall. And he says, but I found none. And so God destroys the land because he can find no man who will stand up in the breach, no man who is willing to go and do the work. Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the uh, Christian goes into interpreter's house and he sees a portrait on the wall. And the portrait is of a man who is standing there as if he is pleading with men. The man has a crown of gold hanging over his head. He has the world behind his back. He has the best of books in his hand. He has the truth written on his lips. And so Christian says, who is this? Interpreter says, this man is one of a thousand. This is a man who begets children, he says. And so he goes on and he describes a minister of the new covenant. This is what God is saying. When he says, who will go for us? He's saying, where are the men with the world behind their backs? With the best of books in their hands? With the truth upon their lips? That's the man that I'm looking for. That's the man that the world needs. I'm looking for that kind of man to stand in the gap so that I don't destroy the land. I'm looking for that kind of man to go and preach the gospel. So Isaiah says, here am I. Behold me, 
The same words that Samuel speaks when God is calling in the temple and Samuel doesn't know who it is. Samuel says, yes, it's me. That's basically what it means. It's me. I'll do it. And then he says, send me. Send me. The last words Isaiah spoke were, woe to me. And now he says, send me. Because Isaiah has had his uh, guilt atoned for. He's had the coal touch his lips. Now he knows that he is now no longer under the woe of God, but he's experienced the grace of God. And so now he wants to be sent by God. And notice Isaiah, as he signs up for this task, he doesn't say, uh, uh, what are the terms, God? Uh, what exactly would you like me to do, God? No, he says, here am I, send me. God hasn't told him yet what the mission is. God calls him the way he calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, leave your family and your house and go out and I'll tell you where you're going. And we'll figure it out. I'll let you know after that. Abraham leaves. It's the same thing here. Isaiah says, Lord, uh, you're the holy God. Lord, you have forgiven me. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you call me to do. Send me. He doesn't know what the mission is. And we're going to see it's, it's a difficult mission, but he's willing to go wherever God calls. Send me, he says. So we think about ourselves Today, God still calls people today. God isn't going to whisper to you. You're not going to hear an audible voice. You're not going to hear a booming voice. Okay, so there can be some times where people say, well, God has called me to do this. And they think that they had some great dream or some vision or something or they heard God speak. That's not how God calls. God calls through the local church. Uh, local churches uh, affirm and recognize that someone is gifted and qualified. Uh, we can have desires, and God can put those desires in us, but those desires are subject to the Word of God, and they're subject to the church. Now, with all of that said, though, God still calls people. God calls men to preach the gospel. God calls men to shepherd Churches. Churches need pastors. Churches in our country and in the state of New York, they need pastors. Uh, the next generation, uh, the churches need a next generation of pastors. There need to be young men who are growing up and becoming pastors of local churches. Not only do the existing churches need pastors, but we need more churches. Do you think that New York needs less churches now than it did 30 years ago? No, we need more churches. We need to be planting churches. And we need to not just plant churches in New York, but every state in America needs more churches. And then, outside of America, there are still many nations where there is great need of churches and even more enormous need of churches. Millions and millions of people lost in darkness across the world. Thousands of people groups who have yet even to hear the name of Christ, people who have no Bible in their own language, no church among their people that speaks their own language. And so 
Today, there is still and maybe even greater need now than ever before for men to go and preach the gospel. God uses means to call people. I wondered, as I was thinking this week, I wondered how many people have been called to be pastors or missionaries from sermons on Isaiah 6, verse 8. God calls people. Because as as you read Isaiah's words, there might be a burning desire in your heart to say, yes, God, here am I too. Send me. Send me to do whatever you call me to do. So maybe God might call you, some of you, somebody here. Maybe 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 14-year-old young men will be those generate future generations of pastors and missionaries. We don't know. We just call. We just preach. I was reading a book recently about, uh, a book is called The St. Andrew's Seven, and it's about six young men and another professor who was the seventh, um, but six young men who were at St. Andrew's University in the 1820s. And all at the same time, they all started to study missions. And God called these six men to become missionaries. They're all basically the same age. And they went out to places like India. And so the Scottish Presbyterian works in India all really started with six men, one college at the same time. Also been reading about uh, these uh, time period in Scotland in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. And I counted, it's also six men. Uh, Men like Robert Murray McChain and and three Bonner brothers like Horatius Bonner, John Milne, um, and William Chalmers Burns. That one generation of these great works of God that happened in Scotland in the 1840s. Six men. Six men that God called all at the same time. God calls people. God still says, who will go? I'm looking for men with the world behind their back and the best of books in their hands to go and preach the gospel. Now, of course, uh, the role of shepherding a church and planting a church is for men and There are many ministry opportunities that women can do even around the world and caring for orphans and caring for the poor or caring for babies in the womb who are on their way to death. There are many other ways if if you're a young woman or a woman, you're thinking, well, that's just for the men. Well, there are many ways that women also can answer the call to go for the sake of Christ. Maybe you've heard this uh, letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to the father of a woman that he met. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma in the 1800s, and he knew he was going to be a missionary, but he met this young woman, and he wanted to marry her. And so he wrote this letter to the father of the woman he wanted to marry, Anne. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. 
whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That was Adoniram's Judson's letter asking the father for his daughter's hand in marriage. Women. Would you be willing? You say, here am I, send me. Send me to this persecution, sickness, possibly death. I'll go for the sake of the lost to be saved from eternal despair and woe. Fathers, are you willing for that to happen for your daughters? Grandparents, are you willing to give up the time living and raising, being a part of your lives of your grandchildren so that your grandchildren can go to the ends of the earth for the sake of the gospel. God calls. Who will go? Who will go? Now, obviously, not everybody is going to be called to be a pastor, to be a missionary to work in what we call ministry. Obviously, churches need members who love the church and support the church, and churches need deacons who are a great service and support and and, uh, holding the church together. And so God gifts people in different ways to have a different role in the church, and they're all a blessing. Uh, Many of us are called to live just godly, quiet lives, raising our families in a godly way, being faithful day by day. Many women will simply uh, be called to the faithful task of shepherding and and, uh, shaping the minds of little children who will, we pray, grow up to know Christ. And that's good. And that's what many people will have in their lives. The main point is that we would all just say like Isaiah, whatever you call me to do, here I am, send me. If it's a godly, quiet life in New York, I'm happy. If you call me to the nations or you call me to go plant a church, I'll do whatever you call me to do. But God still calls Isaiah's. God still calls people like the St. Andrew's Six or the Six in Scotland like McShane and the Bonners. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. Just as Isaiah presents himself as a living sacrifice because he sees the holiness of God, in the same way by the God's mercies, and in view of God's mercies, present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. 
I'll do whatever you call me to do. So, some of you might be wondering, well, then what do I do? How do I know, and what do I do next? Well, be devoted to knowing God, as Isaiah was. Be a voracious reader of the Bible. Love the Word of God. If you're 10 years old or 12 years old, you can grab the Bible and start devouring it and reading it. And read books that help you understand the Word of God. As, as I was reading the lives of these guys in Scotland, uh, these guys started learning Greek at 10 years old. They knew Greek and Latin. And God used all of these gifts and talents and knowledge for his purposes and for his kingdom. And, and so you can do this as a 10-year-old. You can know the word of God. You can learn all of these skills that you can use to serve God. That's where you start. And you need to be holy. Whether you're 20 or 30 or 10, you need to seek to be holy. Spurgeon said, whatever call a man may have, if he has not been called to holiness, he has not been called to the ministry. So if you're 10 or 12 and you say, I want to serve God, well, here's the first way you serve God, aside from devouring the word of God, is you seek to be the godliest 10-year-old you can be. And continue to grow. And as we grow and as we know the word of God, God makes it clear eventually what our path is and what he wants us to do with our lives. So may we say, here am I. But Isaiah's calling is a difficult calling. This is the second part that we see in this passage. Isaiah has no idea what he has signed up for. He has signed up for a ministry that the world would consider absolute failure. We're going to see later, verse 13, that God says a tenth will remain. So that is 10%. So I want you to think about that. Uh, if parents, if a, if a kid comes home with a test that says 10% on it, that's a failure. If the grade in the class is a 10% out of 100, that's failure. Surgeons who have a 10% success rate, they're failures. You don't want that surgeon. You don't want the surgeon where 90% of his patients died in the surgery. And yet God says, Isaiah, now that you've signed on the dotted line, here's what's coming for you. 90% will reject you. And in fact, uh, although God doesn't say this, tradition tells us that Isaiah was killed, sawn in two. If that's an accurate tradition, we don't know. But, but they hate him so much they want to kill him. The 90% are so opposed to his ministry that they kill him. Is Isaiah going to be faithful? Isaiah is called to, to be faithful even in this difficulty with much rejection let's read verses 9 and 10 what God says he said go and say to this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart 
of this people dull, and their, eye, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So verse 9 is the statement of what Isaiah is to say. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, his message is to preach, guys, you're going to listen to my words, but you're not going to understand anything. You're going to see me standing up in front of you, but you're not going to get it at all. And then verse 10 is what God is telling Isaiah to do, the command to Isaiah. Isaiah, you make the heart of this people dull. I'm going to send you so that as you preach, your preaching will make them dull, make them hard-hearted. Isaiah's preaching is not the effect of hard-heartedness. So in other words, they don't reject him uh, because their hearts are hard. And so they, oh, I have no idea what he's saying. No, it's the preaching itself that hardens their hearts. Make the heart dull. It's like the potter who puts out the clay in the sun. And the clay going into the sun, the sun makes it hard. It dries it up. It's the preaching. Is the sun and the heat. The exposure to the preaching makes their hearts even harder. Why does God do this? Well, we see in the middle of verse 10, we see this word lest. It's not a word that we use very often, but lest means so that this will not happen. I need to study for my test lest I fail my test. That's what lest means. Isaiah, you need to make their hearts hard lest they see. So here we have this great mystery that God calls Isaiah to preach so that their hearts would be hard, so that they will not turn. God does not want them to turn. Now, Before we explain what that means, notice how Isaiah responds in verse 11. He says, How long, O Lord? And he's not just asking for the timeline. How long do you want me to preach, God? That word comes from the Psalms. This word is a psalm of lament. How long, O oh Lord? He's, he's struck by this. Lord, this is painful. You're, you're going to harden their hearts so that they don't turn and be healed, and you're going to use me to do this? How long, O oh Lord, is this going to happen? Like when David's enemies are triumphing over him, he says, How long, O oh Lord, will they triumph over me? How long will you keep me in this painful situation? And so Isaiah is responding the same way that the Apostle Paul responds in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 through 11, all about uh, election, predestination, and God hardening hearts of Israel. But Paul starts by saying he has unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen. Unceasing anguish. Sometimes when we talk about the label Calvinism, or predestination, or election. We've turned it into an online fight. We've turned it into a, a funny debate. We, we try to own people with our arguments of predestination. Yeah, well, you don't know what this, this verse says, this verse says, yeah, so you're wrong. 
You don't know anything. You don't know the Bible. Right? It's like that's our attitude towards this whole topic. We need the attitude of Paul. Even the attitude of Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem. The attitude of Isaiah. Lord, this is hard. That you are hardening people's hearts. But going back to the last, why doesn't God want them to turn? Well, we could, in a sense, just look at the history of Israel and see that God has already given many warnings. He has told them through prophets over and over again that they needed to repent and that judgment needed to come, that judgment was going to come. And, and he warned them, but now it's as if their fate has been sealed. And so God has to bring judgment. God has to be faithful to his threats. And therefore, he must harden this generation through the preaching of Isaiah so that they will come to the point where they will now receive the judgment. So here we have the great mystery of the sovereignty of God. Uh, William Cooper in a, a song, he said, deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. God treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Deep and unfathomable minds. Deuteronomy 29, says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. These are things that are past us finding out. We can't understand why God would harden these people and not harden these people. Why uh, God uh, made me hear his voice. Lord, why was I a guest? I don't understand that. I don't know the unfathomable minds of God's never failing skill. But this is God's purpose. For Isaiah's day, his purpose is to make their hearts dull so that he might bring judgment. Now these verses are very important in the New Testament and they're quoted multiple times and these verses take on a new light and kind of a new twist when you think about Jesus. God hardens people's hearts in Jesus' day so that they will kill Jesus. If God hadn't hardened their hearts, they would not have killed him. If they had not killed him, we couldn't be saved. You see the unfathomable mind of never failing skill of God? 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul says, If they had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because they didn't have the wisdom of God, they crucified the Lord of glory. And yet Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So you have predestination there. And he says, you crucified him. Human responsibility. They're responsible for everything that they've done, even though their hearts were hardened. They were kept from understanding the wisdom of God so that they would crucify the Lord of glory because this was God's plan the whole time that the Son of God in the flesh would be crucified. You have this also in John chapter 12 when John 
quotes those verses in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. He quotes it at the end of chapter 12, and he says, this is why they could not believe. They could not believe in Jesus because Jesus was like Isaiah. He preached to them, and by preaching to them, they responded by hardening their hearts. Jesus' preaching hardened their hearts. And yet, why does John put that at the end of chapter 12? Well, because chapter 13 is the beginning of the Last Supper and the death of Jesus Christ, the, the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. Isaiah quote, uh, John quotes Isaiah 6 as a sort of introduction. Here's why this is all happening. Here's why Jesus is dying. Because they cannot believe. Because their hearts are being made hard. Paul quotes this then in Acts chapter 28 to explain why the Jews were rejecting uh, the gospel that he was preaching, that Paul is like Isaiah, and, and why the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And so as we think about God's hardening, the first thing you should think is, well, I want to be saved. I thank God that he appointed Jesus Christ, the Son, to die on the cross I thank God in a sense, although it brings anguish, I thank God that their hearts were hardened so that Christ could die for my sins. I thank God that the gospel went to the Gentiles because most of us are Gentiles. The gospel would not have come to the United States of America if God had not hardened their hearts in Acts chapter 28. So you should say, I want to be saved. And if I have been saved, I thank God that he has saved me. I don't know why. This is deep stuff in the minds that I am not qualified to explore. But I thank God that he saved me. Has he saved you? Do you trust in Christ? Do you trust in the work he's done? And then the last application as you think about these verses. It's interesting that Jesus quotes these also in his parable about the four soils, Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 4. But you know what Jesus says? Listen. That's his application. Listen to the word. And he quotes Isaiah and say that some people's hearts are hard and they won't listen, but he tells you to listen. He said, look, we can, we can worry and we can talk all day about how God hardens other people's hearts, but your job is to listen. You don't harden your heart. Is it, and so you see the sovereignty and the responsibility. The responsibility of every single person here is to not harden your heart. To soften your heart. To listen to the word of God. To believe in the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. Do you listen? So Isaiah has a difficult calling. And it reminds us, if you want to serve Christ, if you're going to offer up your life as a living sacrifice, don't expect that to be easy. People will reject you. People will reject the gospel. You will have 
what Paul has unceasing anguish in your heart. As you watch people walk into sin. As you watch people walk away from Christ. Walk into the world. It will break your heart to see the sin that people hold on to and love. It will be difficult. As we sang earlier in that song, we long to see thy churches full. And we always want God to save more and more people. We always want people to be more and more mature in their faith. And so, you see, 90% maybe, 90% reject, walk away. It's a difficult calling to serve Christ. Our calling is to be faithful to the message that God gives. But we'll close by looking for a few minutes at the hope of the calling. Verse 13, God holds out a little bit of hope for Isaiah. He says, though a tenth remain, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 90% will reject, but 10% will not. There will be a remnant. There are those who remain. He says it will be burned. That remnant will be burned. They will be purified themselves. We saw in Isaiah chapter 4 about how those who survive, they also will be purged of their impurities. So even this, this fire of trials will come upon the remnant, but God will preserve a tenth. And it will be like a giant oak tree that has fallen down, and there's just a stump. But out of the stump will come a branch. He says the holy seed is its stump. Those words bring us back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman that will fight against the seed of the serpent. There's a holy seed and there's an ungodly seed, a satanic seed. The holy seed is preserved from Eve through Abraham and Jacob. And it's preserved through the kingdom of Judah. The holy seed is a stump. Nothing. But Isaiah is going to tell us, in chapter 11, that from the stump will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So the Messiah, the Savior, will come from this thing that looks like it's practically dead and good for nothing. Isaiah 53 tells us the suffering servant comes up like a root out of dry ground. It's like a little stump. Comes this little shoot. The Messiah and the suffering servant. Isaiah's call was to be faithful for the sake of the 10%. If Isaiah had been unfaithful and said, God, don't send me, send somebody else. The 90% would not have been hardened. The 10% would not have remained. The holy seed would not have stayed there. Because Isaiah's preaching the gospel. He's preaching chapter 7 and 9 and 11 and 53. He's preaching that. 
and 90% of his audience will reject it, but there will be the 10% that holds on in faith and believes the gospel that Isaiah is preaching. And because of Isaiah's faithful preaching, the Messiah comes. God uses Isaiah to harden, but to save a 10%. If you're Isaiah, would you do it? Would you give your life 50 years of preaching, rejected by 90% for the glory of helping the remnant along to bring about God's great salvation, Jesus Christ. Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Do you endure all things for the sake of the church, for the sake of the elect? This is our call. As we come to know God and his holiness, We know that our sins are atoned for. We say, here am I. Send me. Whatever you call me to do. Let's pray. God, you are holy, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing. We cast ourselves down before you as the one who works all things. We thank you, Lord, that you are working all things for the sake of your church, working all things for the glory of Jesus Christ, that he might be the one who is preeminent. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that we would not harden our hearts towards you and to your word. We pray that we would offer our lives as living sacrifices. Lord, we pray that you would use us for the sake of the remnant, for the sake of the gospel and those who will respond. Use us for your kingdom. Build your church. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.